0: The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. Good
1: morning. So uh, we've been working our way passage by passage through the book of Acts. And today the next passage we come to is Acts 13 verses 4 through 12 Uh, it says so being sent out by the Holy Spirit they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus when they arrived at Salamis they proclaimed the Word of God in the synagogues of the Jews and they had John to assist them when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos they came upon a certain magician a Jewish false prophet named bar Jesus He was with the proconsul sergius paulus a man of intelligence who summoned barnabas and saul and sought to hear the word of god but Elymas, the magician for that is the meaning of his name opposed them seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith but saul who was also called paul filled with the holy spirit looked intently in him and said you son of the devil you enemy of all righteousness full of all deceit and villainy Will you, not, will, you, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. This was then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. May God bless the reading of his word.
0: Thank you, Tom. Let's pray this morning. Father, what a blessing it is to be able to gather together and worship your name and hear from your word. Father, we pray as we take a look at this passage in Acts 13, that you, Holy Spirit, the same spirit who inspired These words to be written would now take them and apply them to our hearts, Lord. May these truths resonate within us, Lord, and make us into the people you want us to be, Lord. Most of all, Lord, lead us to treasure the gospel and treasure Jesus above everything else in this world. And we pray in his name. Amen. One of the best ways to lose a war is to not even realize that you're fighting one. (laughs) Any country that's oblivious to the presence of a powerful enemy or to that enemy's strategies or tactics will almost certainly be defeated. And you could also apply this to athletic competitions as well. Uh, I remember back when I was in high school, running at my very first track meet, and my main event was the two-mile race. And uh, I wasn't a bad runner. However, I really didn't know what I was doing. And so on the last lap of the race, when I was in a, a pretty good Position. I wasn't in first place, but I was doing pretty well, and the runner who was behind me was a a pretty good distance behind me. And so I just continued running that last lap of the race at approximately the same pace I had run the first seven laps. However, what I didn't realize is that about halfway through that last lap, the runner behind me began an all-out sprint for the finish line. And I remember on that final 100-yard stretch, but leading up to the finish line, a bunch of my teammates were on the sideline shouting something at me. I, I couldn't exactly make out what it was, but it sounded like some kind of a warning. And so I glanced behind me, and to my surprise, this guy has closed the gap and is now only a step or two behind me. So needless to say, at that point, adrenaline took over, and the both of us sprinted it out from the finish line. And, and thankfully I, I was able to cross the finish line before him, but it was very, very close. And so I almost lost the race to this other runner simply because I was unaware of what was going on. Right, I just didn't realize the nature or intensity of the contest that I was in. And it works in a similar way spiritually. You know, there are no shortage of passages in the Bible that record and remind us that we're in the middle of a spiritual war of epic proportions. In fact, that's the main idea of this passage in Acts 13. This passage shows us that a spiritual war is raging for the souls of those who don't yet know God. A spiritual war is raging for the souls of those who don't yet know God. And again, the best way to lose that war is to not even realize we're in the middle of it. Satan is a powerful opponent with a very specific strategy and a very specific agenda. And at the very center of that agenda is his desire to hinder the spread of the gospel, and to keep people from putting their faith in Jesus. Unfortunately, Satan often does this very effectively. So it's not really an acceptable option at all for Christians to be oblivious to this monumental struggle, to this spiritual war that's raging around us. And not only do we need to recognize the reality of this war, But we also need to know a thing or two about our enemy in order to counter his attacks effectively. We need to know, for example, what he's trying to do, how he's trying to do it, how to recognize his work in this world, and ultimately how to overcome it. Now, thankfully, I believe the passage before us shows us all of these things. But before we walk through this passage, let me first take a moment and remind you of the context here, since it's been a few weeks since we looked at the preceding passage. Chapter 13 marks a major turning point in Acts. Uh, The first 12 chapters of Acts uh, document the spread of the gospel primarily among Jews, primarily through the apostle Peter. And this took place in the city of Jerusalem and also in the surrounding regions of Judea and Samaria. However, Beginning with chapter 13 and continuing through the rest of the book, the focus now shifts to the gospel's advance among those who aren't Jews, often called Gentiles, through the Apostle Paul. And Paul and his missionary companions would take the gospel far beyond the borders of Judea and take it throughout the Roman Empire. Now, as we saw a few weeks ago, the first three verses of Acts 13 record the Holy Spirit leading the church of Antioch to set apart their two most prominent leaders, Barnabas and Saul, for missionary endeavors wherever the Spirit might lead them to go. And by the way, Saul and Paul are the same person, right? Saul is his Hebrew name, while Paul is his Roman name. And so the church prays over Barnabas and Saul and sends them off for this ministry. They're two most prominent leaders sent off for the sake of the gospel. What a powerful reminder that the mission Jesus has given us of spreading the gospel, it takes priority over everything. It takes priority over our comfort. It takes priority over our preferences. It takes priority over It all. And so that's Acts 13, one through three. And now as we come to verse four, here's what we read about Barnabas and Saul. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, right from verses one through three, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. So destination number one in their missionary travels was the island of Cyprus. And as you can see on the map here Cyprus was actually fairly close to Antioch. Uh, You can see Antioch all the way on the right side of the map with Cyprus just a little ways to the southwest of that. And uh, one reason why Barnabas and Saul probably chose the island of Cyprus first was that not only was it close by but also according to Acts 4.36 Barnabas was a native of Cyprus. And so Barnabas already knew the culture and the territory, which made him rather well equipped to engage in ministry there. And then look at verses five through seven. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came to a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the Word of God. So in their travels through Cyprus, Paul and Barnabas come to the capital of the island, a city called Paphos, where they encounter two people, first a magician. And Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Now, Bar-Jesus literally means son of Jesus or son of salvation. And we can't be sure, but he may have actually chosen that name for himself because he was actually claiming to be a descendant of Jesus and who had inherited Jesus's miracle working power. But regardless of what his name is a reference to, just understand that this guy is bad news (laughs) through and through. Like when it says that he was a magician, understand that's not the kind of magician that we might encounter today who, you know, is primarily an entertainer who does family-friendly magic shows with disappearing animals and neat card tricks, right? This magician was a guy who was more the, the kind that would do things that were rooted in demonic power, That was the source of his magic. And the text says that he was with the Roman proconsul, basically the governor of that region uh, of Cyprus, a man named Sergius Paulus. So Bar Jesus would have functioned as something of a consultant for the proconsul, using his magical powers to uh, give the proconsul advice in various situations. He was probably involved in using astrology to look for different signs that would be significant for the proconsul, as well as utilizing various formulas and incantations and amulets in an effort to provide the proconsul with reliable guidance as he made important decisions. And again, these magical powers originated from demonic entities. Now, It seems that the timing of Barnabas and Saul's arrival on Paphos really couldn't have been better. Uh, The proconsul, Sergius Paulus, was apparently very interested in spiritual things and receptive to spiritual ideas. That's probably one reason why he had barred Jesus around and why why it says in the text that he summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. I mean, that's pretty amazing when you think about it. I mean, imagine, just imagine not being from here and coming to Pennsylvania as a missionary, right? And going to the city of Harrisburg and being summoned by Governor Wolf because he wanted to hear the word of God, right? That would be incredible. And that's basically what happens here in verse 7. So evidently this proconsul was dissatisfied with the paganism and idolatry that was pervasive throughout the empire and was on a quest for spiritual truth and was therefore amazingly open to new ideas. Unfortunately, Bar-Jesus had been filling his mind with nonsense, but now Barnabas and Saul arrive and are able to share the gospel with the proconsul. And it's when they do that that the spiritual war, that's been a reality this whole time, now becomes evident. Look at verses 8 through 10. But Elymas the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil. YOU ENEMY OF ALL RIGHTEOUSNESS, FULL OF ALL DECEIT AND VILLAINY, WILL YOU NOT STOP MAKING CROOKED THE STRAIGHT PATHS OF THE LORD?" SO, (laughs) WHEN THIS MAGICIAN, WHO IS APPARENTLY ALSO CALLED ELIMUS, TRIES TO TURN THE PROCONSUL AWAY FROM THE GOSPEL, PAUL, WHO (laughs) IS EVER SO TALENTED AT BEING SUBTLE, uh, CALLS HIM A SON OF THE devil. And an enemy of all righteousness. Not exactly the kind of thing you would find on a Hallmark card, is it? Uh, the likely reason that Paul calls him a son of the devil is because he's playing on his name. Uh, remember, this magician liked to call himself Bar-Jesus or son of Jesus. And so by calling him a son of the devil, Paul's essentially saying, look, dude, like you got way more in common with the devil than you do with Jesus. And it was true. Elymas was functioning as an instrument of Satan in his attempts to keep the proconsul from embracing the gospel. That also made him, as Paul says, an enemy of all righteousness, who was making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. God designed the way to be rescued from our sins to be a straight path easy to follow for all who are willing to give up their prideful self-sufficiency. But Elymas was putting obstacles in the proconsul's way, and thereby making this straight path into a crooked way. Uh, presumably he was doing this because he enjoyed his position of prominence with the proconsul, and wanted to keep his job. You know, the proconsul coming to faith wouldn't exactly be a career boost for Elymas. And yet what we see here isn't just Elymas' career ambitions, but ultimately the work of Satan through Elymas to prevent the spread of the gospel. We are seeing a manifestation of the spiritual war that's always raging. A war for the souls of those Who don't yet know God. And as we see here, Paul knows exactly what's happening. He's not oblivious to this spiritual war, but addresses it head on in his rebuke to Elymas. And it's critical for us to be keyed into that as well as we seek to lead people to Jesus. Like when you share the gospel with someone, understand that you're not sharing that message in a spiritually neutral context. First of all, we know from the Bible that the person's heart is naturally in a state of rebellion against God until God works miraculously to change that. So that's one thing that's not neutral. But in addition to that, don't doubt for a moment that Satan is actively involved in this situation And willing to use every weapon in his arsenal to keep that person from embracing Christ. You might compare it to a a magnet. You can't see the pull of a magnet, can you? It's invisible to our eyes. And yet it's definitely there. Exerting a powerful influence and pulling certain things in a certain direction. And similarly, even though we can't see Satan or his work, that doesn't make it any less real or any less powerful. So sharing the gospel, as simple as it might be in many ways, actually involves all out war. Right? It is an act of war against the forces of darkness. And that shouldn't in any way discourage us from sharing the gospel, but it should lead us to make sure that our gospel witness is absolutely saturated in prayer. This battle against the forces of darkness is won not by our cleverness or by our sophistication and sharing the Gospel, but rather on our knees in prayer. Because our human abilities, guys, are no match for Satan's power. Satan laughs at our abilities, but he trembles at our prayers. Samuel Chadwick said it like this, Satan dreads nothing but prayer. His one concern is to keep the saints from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil. He mocks our wisdom. But he trembles when we pray. So that's why we pray. (laughs) Both as individuals, hopefully. And as a church, in context like our Wednesday prayer meeting, we recognize that we're in a spiritual war, and that this spiritual war has to be fought in a spiritual way, and with spiritual weapons. Also, as we look at Elymas here in Acts 13, we're not told exactly what he said, to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But we can be sure that it involved deception. Satan, after all, is referred to by Jesus himself as the father of lies in John eight forty four. 44. That's just the way he operates, his M.O., if you will. Not only that, but in Paul's rebuke to Elymas in verse 10, he specifically says that Elymas is full of all Deceit. And listen, just as Satan was working through Elymas to whisper lies into the ears of the proconsul here, he's actively whispering lies today into the ears of people all around us. And yes, even into our own ears. And so I'd like to bring a few of these lies to your attention this morning by sharing with you five lies from Satan that seem to be especially common in our society today. First, the lie that life is about finding yourself and creating your own identity. Um, If there's anything that defines this generation it's an ongoing identity crisis. Having rejected God as our creator, we now don't even know who we are anymore. <laughs> when a belief in God was more common, we had an identity that was given to us for the most part. We, we didn't have to figure out who we were. We were able to mostly simply embrace it. And that identity was a wonderful thing, a gift from a good and loving God. Now, however, people don't have that. Instead, they're left to create an identity for themselves essentially out of thin air. Some people, for example, do this by seeking to advance in their career. Others seek to forge an identity through various relationships. Still others seek it through popularity and notoriety. And the thing that all of these different identities have in common is that they are all ever so fragile. Right? They can be shattered in an instant by a career setback or a difficult breakup or even a harsh comment on social media. I mean, is it any wonder today that, uh, that mental health cases are skyrocketing? And not only that, but this duty of creating our own identity is nearly limitless, extending now even to the areas of gender and sexuality. And even though many people today would undoubtedly identify all of this as a liberation, it seems to me to be more along the lines of bondage. I mean, what a burden it must be to have to continually figure out who you are. And then even after you you think you've finally figured it out to still only have an identity that's as fragile as a glass figurine. No wonder Satan delights in whispering this lie into people's ears, that life is about finding yourself and creating your own identity. Then a second satanic lie that seems to be especially common today is that it's arrogant to believe in absolute truth. We're told that truth is a relative concept, so that something could be true for one person but not true for another. And, of course, this includes uh, beliefs about God. So, the result is that nothing, not even God, can function as an authority over us. And make no mistake that that's the real here. That's what makes this lie from Satan so effective. People, at the end of the day, they just don't want to have to give an account to God for the way that they live. Right? They, they want to be able to follow the sinful desires of their hearts without being hindered. And this denial of the existence of absolute truth is a convenient way to do that. Now, uh, of course, the, the idea that absolute truth doesn't exist... I believe is a blatantly self-refuting idea because the idea itself presupposes the existence of at least one absolute truth, the truth that absolute truth doesn't exist. And so this viewpoint ends up affirming the very thing it seeks to deny. But, as is so often the case, it's very easy to overlook things like that and, and to overlook inconsistencies and the rules of logic when there's something that you really want to believe. And Satan is, of course, more than happy to add fuel to the fire and advance this lie as much as possible. This leads us to the third lie that Satan's whispering in the ears of people today, the lie that God and his rules are oppressive. The implication is that God in giving us instructions for how to live, is either on some kind of a cosmic power trip, and just doesn't care if we're happy or not, or is deliberately and maliciously trying to make us miserable. Either way, he's oppressing us. That's what Satan would have us believe. And this is a lie that he's been peddling for a long time. In fact, ever since... He tempted Eve with the fruit in the garden of Eden. I mean, why change it if it's been so effective? And yet the Bible teaches us that God's told us to live in a certain way, not because he's oppressing us, but because he loves us and is showing us the best and most satisfying way to live. Much like a parent might instruct their child to eat healthy foods or look both ways before crossing the street. Parents don't tell their kids things like that because they're oppressing them, but rather as an expression of love, as is God when he instructs us to live in certain ways. And yet Satan's almost constantly whispering the opposite into our ears, telling us that God and his rules are oppressive. And fourth, Satan loves to tell people that their sin is too great for God to ever forgive. Supposedly there's a limit to what God can forgive and they're surpassed it. <laughs> Never mind that 1 John 1.9 tells us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Satan wants us to believe that there are some kinds of unrighteousness that God can't cleanse. As if the blood of Jesus shed on the cross is deficient in some way and lacks the power to forgive whatever sins we've committed. Then finally, the fifth and perhaps most common lie, Satan's whispering into people's ears is that you'll be happy when you fill in the blank. You'll be happy when you get that promotion at work. You'll be happy when you meet that special someone. You'll be happy when you're able to save up a certain amount of money or make a certain purchase or afford a certain kind of lifestyle. Yet in reality, the Bible teaches us that true joy is found only in God. As David says to God in Psalm 1611, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Ultimate joy and pleasure are found in God and God alone. And yet Satan would have us looking to everything but God in our quest for joy. With the result that we always seem to come up empty. So those are some of the lies that Satan loves to whisper into the ears of people today. Just as back in our main text, the magician Elymas sought to keep the proconsul from embracing Jesus by telling him whatever lies he thought would be effective Satan employs the same strategy today to keep people from Jesus. Again, why change it if it's working so well? And so for any here this morning who might be tempted to buy into one or more of these lies, which probably is all of us, I can't encourage you enough. Don't be deceived. Deceived. Moving on now to verse 11, after Paul rebukes Elymas for allowing himself to be used by Satan for such evil purposes, he says to him, and now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Elimus' physical blindness here functions as a symbol of his spiritual blindness. It also serves as a demonstration that Jesus is supreme over the forces of darkness. And the proconsul takes notice, doesn't he? We read in verse 12, Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Notice here, what it says makes such a big impact on the proconsul. This verse mentions that the miracle of Elymas being struck with blindness had something to do with the proconsul's conversion, but it wasn't the driving force. According to the text, why did the proconsul believe? It says that the proconsul believed when he saw that what had occurred for or because He was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. That word, astonished, also translated amazed or or, or astounded, It, it shows us that even though Paul's miracle was obviously a factor in the proconsul embracing the gospel, ultimately it was the gospel message itself the teaching of the Lord, as it says, that the proconsul found so persuasive. You see, the truth of the gospel, guys, is ultimately self-evident. Yes, it can can be very helpful to look and do research into the historical evidence for Christianity. There's certainly a place for that. But at the end of the day, the gospel is self-evident and self-authenticating. When God opens our eyes to behold the glory of the gospel and to recognize how, quote, astonishing and and, and amazing the things it teaches are, we just intuitively recognize that this, this just has to be from God. You know, it would be kind of like finding some sort of electronic device out in the woods. Like let's say, for example, that you found a cell phone out there in the woods. You would assume that somebody dropped that phone, right? You wouldn't assume that the the dirt and the leaves just somehow mixed together and managed to form a phone, (laughs) You also wouldn't assume that the animals tried to you know, maybe work together and pool their intelligence and manufacture that phone out there, right? Because that phone, with all of its incredibly complex circuits and different components, is far beyond what the random forces of nature or what the, 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 the animal life out there is capable of developing. It just can't happen. In a similar way, when God opens our eyes to behold the glory of the gospel, we intuitively recognize that this is infinitely beyond what any human mind can invent. And therefore, just has to be from God. For example, think about the holiness of God. It's a pretty central theme in the gospel, I would say. Um, The Bible teaches that God is absolutely holy in a way that we can't comprehend and has zero tolerance for sin. He never winks at our sins or sweeps them under the rug, but instead is compelled by his own righteous and holy nature to judge us for our sins. Now, right there, we see something striking. Even though God's holiness certainly isn't a comfortable thought for us to think about, since we're so unholy, that very discomfort is actually a powerful indication that this whole idea of a holy God isn't a product of the human imagination. A 20th century theologian named A.W. Pink once said it like this, an ineffably holy God who has the utmost aberrance of sin was never invented by any of Adam's descendants. Again, an ineffably or unspeakably holy God who has the utmost aberrance or hatred of sin was never invented by any of Adam's descendants. You see, if we were inventing a God we would inevitably invent a God whose holiness is far below that of the God of the Bible. I mean, let's be honest. We would invent a God who's a lot more tolerant of our sin. And yet, the God of the Bible is a God of absolute holiness. In addition, not only is the holiness of God self-authenticating and beyond what we could come up with, I'm convinced that the love of God is self-authenticating as well. The gospel is a message of this holy and righteous God showing incredible mercy even toward those who had rebelled against him and demonstrating his love for them in an astounding way. God the Father sent Jesus, his son, his own son, to come to this earth on a rescue mission. Jesus did that by being born into this world as a human being and living a life that's never been lived before, a perfect life, free from even the smallest sin. And then he voluntarily allowed himself to endure the agony of crucifixion. See, our sins, they had to be dealt with. Somebody had to pay in order for God's justice to be satisfied. And yet Jesus endured that judgment in our place. Romans 5, 6 through 8 says it like this. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, Perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I mean, think about that. Even while we were still sinners, even when we were in a state of active and hateful rebellion against God, Christ died for us. I mean, what human mind? You, you tell me, what human mind could ever invent love like that? Guys, we can't even comprehend that love, much less invent. So that's what I mean when I say that the gospel is self-authenticating. It, it shines with a glory that just has to be from God. And back at our main passage... It's this glory that the proconsul saw and that caused him to be, as it says, astonished and amazed. And perhaps there are some here this morning who are similar to the proconsul in that your eyes are being opened to to this glory of the gospel like never before. Will you respond as the proconsul did by embracing? This glorious gospel message. And that involves turning away from your sins and putting your complete trust in Jesus alone as your only hope of being cleansed of those sins and being made right with God. Also, for those of us who are already Christians, hopefully, all this is an encouragement for us to share the gospel with boldness and confidence. Listen, you don't have to know the answer to every question. You don't have to be equipped with an arsenal of sophisticated philosophical arguments. Just share what you know about Jesus. Like, help people see who he is and and what he's done and everything that makes him so glorious. Because that's what God uses to get a hold of people's hearts and to open their eyes and and ultimately to bring them to faith. The most powerful argument for the truth of Jesus is Jesus. His glory is self-authenticating. As we look at Acts 13, we see that a spiritual war is indeed raging. For the souls of those who don't yet know God. And yet we have a weapon that can't be overcome. The truth of the gospel that exposes the lies of the enemy. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Paul writes elsewhere. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for such a glorious message and such a glorious Savior. Thank you for Jesus, who he is, what he's done, his person, his work, everything, Lord. He is amazing. And I pray that, that for anyone in here who has not yet seen this self-authenticating glory of Christ, Lord, that even this morning you would open their eyes. Lord, we understand from 2 Corinthians 4 that Satan has blinded the eyes of those who don't yet know Christ to keep them from seeing this light of the gospel. Lord, I pray even this morning you would unblind their eyes, help them to see this message as they have never seen it before. And I pray for all of us, Lord, who are Christians, that you would help us to be, first of all, very prayerful in our gospel witness, understanding that our abilities are no match for Satan's power, and yet also to be very confident in sharing, knowing that we have a weapon that cannot be overcome, and a God who is supreme in power. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.